Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jude. We'll be reading this evening verses 14 through 16 of the book of Jude. Let us give ear now to the reading of the holy and inerrant and life-giving word of God. Jude, beginning in verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Almighty God and our everlasting Father in heaven, we do pray now with your word open before us for the divine aid of your Holy Spirit as we uh, determine what you would have for us, what you've revealed to us in your word this evening. Would you, uh, by the power of your spirit, take your word and use it to melt hearts, to change lives, to build up your church. In Jesus' name, amen. There's something in all of us that longs for justice and fairness. You can see it in children from the earliest ages in their sometimes misguided but often justified cries of, that's not fair. There is, you might say, a universal need and desire for justice. And the flip side of that is that injustice bothers us to the very core. When someone goes to prison for a crime that they did not commit, there has been a tragic miscarriage or perhaps even worse, an abuse of justice. Or when blatant wickedness goes unpunished or perhaps less punished than is deserved, this bothers us at a fundamental level. In the verses before us this evening, however, Jude makes it unmistakably clear that there is coming a day when true justice will be dealt perfectly. There's comfort there in a very real sense in that all wrongs will be made right. There's also something fearful about such a reality. For the ungodly, as Jude will describe for us, this reality should strike a fear in the soul that eclipses all else. One can deny the reality of judgment or simply pretend it away, but Jude will not let that happen. Judgment is coming. It is inevitable, and it will be meted out according to perfect justice. And for those unprepared, it will be eternally tragic. What I want us to see this evening from this passage of God's word is the ungodliness that deserves and brings judgment 
from God. We'll see this unfold in three ways, and the first way we see this begin to unfold is the promise of judgment foretold. Before we attend to the content of verse 14, uh, the promise of coming judgment, we need to address a challenge presented to us by this promise of judgment, and that is its source. Jude says in verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Now the difficulty is that the following quotation cited by Jude does not come to us from the Old Testament. The remainder of verse 14 through verse 15 is a quote which comes from a book which we know as First Enoch. This is a book that first appeared in Jewish literature about sometime after 200 B.C., and it's part of a category of books that we know as Old Testament pseudepigrapha, which simply means a book whose authorship is falsely attributed. Uh, This was a fairly widespread practice uh, during the intertestamental period and even into early church history. These books um, with falsely attributed authors were were well-known. They were uh, used often and they were highly regarded, but they were never considered to be by any Jewish group or even early Christian groups to be inspired scripture or even that they should be considered to be included in the New Testament canon. So Jude's inclusion of a quote, a prophecy from a book such as this, was something that the early church wrestled with. There were some who thought that Jude perhaps uh, may not, should be included in the New Testament canon due to his use of material from such a book. And there were even those who, because of Jude's inclusion of material from 1st Enoch, tended to hold that book in a more authoritative manner than they ought. So for Christians who hold to a biblical and orthodox view of divine inspiration and the New Testament canon as is known throughout church history, there are basically two ways to reconcile the issue. One way is, and there are really good evangelical scholars who hold this view, uh, to simply understand Jude as using material that was familiar to his readers, and more specifically familiar to his opponents, in a rhetorical manner. In other words, he doesn't consider that quote to be necessarily genuine or divine truth, but his readers do and his opponents do, and so he uses it to bolster his argument. This view sort of gets Jude off the hook, if you will. The problem with that view, however, is that Jude gives no indication that he is using the quote in such a way. And furthermore, one has to assume that his opponents held First Enoch to be in such high regard, and this seems unlikely given its content and given their antinomian philosophy. Now, the other way of approaching the issue is, and I think this is the better way of approaching it, is that Jude is using this quote because he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, considered it to be genuine. And thus, via his inclusion of this particular quote in his book, Under the guidance of inspiration, we can then affirm it and know it to be genuine. Jude seems, from a plain reading of the text, to be claiming that Enoch prophesied about these false teachers. D.A. Carson explains, This suggests that Jude saw this text as preserving genuine prophecy 
It does not necessarily imply that he thought all of First Enoch was prophetic. In other words, just because Jude cites from a book does not require us to conclude that the book from which the citation comes is inspired or, more specifically, that Jude regarded it to be so. In other words, because of and in accord with our understanding and view of divine inspiration, we can understand this statement as coming from the biblical Enoch that was preserved in some manner from his day, orally or or otherwise, And it was included in this book, First Enoch, and Jude, via the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes that quote in his authoritative New Testament book. One of my seminary professors at RTS Charlotte, Bob Kara, puts his own view in this way. Jude quoted with a few additions from First Enoch and considered this statement to be genuine. Now, it is the content of the prophecy that is what's most important for us. At the end of the day, regardless of how one understands how Jude is using this quote, the language in the quotation uh, is directly in line with Old Testament language in various places about the coming of God with his angels to judge the earth. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5, for instance, we read this, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And there's one significant change of a few that Jude makes to the language of this quote from First Enoch uh, is the word Lord. Behold, the Lord comes, Jude says. Uh, Jude changed the language of that quote to include that word. He takes a prophecy from Enoch full of Old Testament language about the certain and coming judgment of God, and then he adapts it to refer explicitly to the second coming of our Lord Jesus when he comes to judge the living and the dead. Another, another reason Jude also employs this quote from Enoch is because of its direct use of another Old Testament passage. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, uh, as Moses is blessing the people of God, he reminds them of the presence of the angels with God as he appeared to them at Sinai in the giving of the law. We read this, the Lord came from Sinai, he came with ten thousands of holy ones. And thus, given this particular use of Old Testament language, here is an apt prophecy for Jude's antinomian false teachers. Paul Gardner explains, there is a great double irony here in Jude. The very law the teachers so despised was put into effect through the angels whose authority they slandered, back from verse 8. And it is these very angels so despised by the false teachers who will be present at their judgment. The Lord Jesus would speak in a similar manner when he referred to the final judgment. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and judgment will commence as he separates the sheep from the goats. The prophetic exclamation here, uh, behold, is is meant to, to jolt us to the reality of the earth-shattering nature of the divine act of judgment that is coming. This will be an event that is awesome in its majesty 
and power, thousands upon thousands of the holy army of angels will accompany the Lord Jesus when he comes to judge. There's a certainty Jude highlights as well in this quote. The word for the Lord comes is once again in the style of an Old Testament prophet's authoritative pronouncement. It is in the past tense. Literally, it says the Lord came. The the coming judgment is so certain and unavoidable, Jude can refer to it as having already happened. Well, this is the promise of judgment foretold, and Jude goes on to explicitly speak of the purpose of Christ's coming is to, at the beginning of verse 15, to execute judgment on all. And that brings us to the second feature of this text is in verse 15, the grounds of judgment stated. Jude explains the the purpose of Christ's coming in two ways. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. Now embedded in those two purpose statements is the language of the courtroom. The Lord comes to execute judgment. That is forensic courtroom language. The the word for judgment there has to do with the administration of true justice. It, It means to decide a question of legal right or wrong and thus to determine the innocence or guilt of the accused and assign appropriate punishment or retribution. So the emphasis in such an idea is on the the just nature of the judgment that is coming. There, There will be no subjectivity. There will be no partiality. It will be perfect. This will be justice of such a nature as is unknown among mankind, and it will be carried out perfectly in the courtroom of heaven. There will be no miscarriage of justice. He comes to execute judgment. No one will get off scot-free or with that mere slap on the wrist all too often seen, unfortunately, in the courtrooms of mankind. One reason for the, the perfect administration of justice is in the second purpose of Christ's coming that Jude cites. He comes to convict all the ungodly. Again, the language of the courtroom is here. The emphasis in this word is on the proof of guilt. It's, it's the idea of successfully demonstrating the truth of a charge. Thus, in Christ's judgment, there will be an irrefutable demonstration of guilt. Thus, ensuring the outcome of perfect justice and an unavoidable verdict guilty. The the sense of that word convict really is is the fact that there will be no possibility of refutation. There will be no ability to say after the fact that that one side or the other was not heard adequately. There, There will be no evidence tossed out in some legal loophole seen in an imperfect human system of justice. The truth will be fully exposed. There will be no refuting of it that, that, that woefully inadequate, I was basically a good person, will not be able to stand. It will be utterly refuted. Jean Green soberingly points out, in the judgment, the true character of the heretics will be brought to light. Thus, there will be no question of the just nature of the punishment 
that awaits. What will be the basis for such perfectly carried out and irrefutably just judgment? Jude makes it unavoidably clear. It is ungodliness. Jude's repetition uh, of this word makes it the centerpiece of these verses. Look at verse 15. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He makes it difficult, to say the least, to miss his point. It is the false teachers whose judgment Jude is focused on here, but it is the ungodliness of the false teachers that provides the basis or the warrant for their judgment. Jude's fourfold use of this word in various forms makes it unmistakably clear as to why they will face inevitable judgment. Their conviction, which will not be in doubt, and the due punishment will be just, and this will be the basis of that justice. The root of of that word, uh, translated in various forms of ungodliness, has to do with the idea of, of reverence and honor toward God. And thus, as a negation of that concept, what we're talking about here is, is in a very general sense, an impiety, uh, an impious, irreverent, or, or even flippant attitude toward God, uh, perhaps even a disdain or just an apathy toward God and his commands. I think a more helpful way of understanding the term ungodly here is really the idea of godlessness in thought word or deed. It it, it can be a state of mind in which a person uh, actively opposes or struggles against God, or it could be a passive disobedience and an indifference toward him. In other words, we're not talking about philosophical atheism here. We're talking about a practical godlessness that is ungodly. This is what is behind all of the actions and all of the words of these false teachers. They, They have couched their lifestyle and their message and their teaching in the language of God's grace. But what's really behind all of their immorality is godlessness. Disobedience and disregard for God's commandments is godlessness, says Jude. And this will be the basis of the inevitable and irrefutable judgment of God against sinners Behold, the Lord comes to execute judgment and convict the ungodly. The, 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 Jude's use and repetition of this term, there, there's, a, there's a power and a thoroughness to the, this almost awkward redundancy of his use of this word. The, the ungodly acts committed by the ungodly are carried out in an ungodly way. Thus, the harsh words spoken be, can be said to be spoken by people who in their very essence are godless sinners. The other word Jude noticeably and and emphatically reiterates here is is the word all. Uh, He uses that word four times as well, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. There's a comprehensive nature that Jude is trying to get across here of this judgment. Not one offense against the law of God, will go unconvicted. All of them and all of their ungodliness. 
Jude speaks here of the, of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Here, here it's the ungodly or better understood, the godless essence of their speech that it will be evidence in the case made against them. Uh, the idea there of, of harsh language, it's, it's harsh to the one who hears it. it. It is speech that is evidence of an irreverent attitude and heart toward God, a disdain that's evidenced in their speech toward God. Their impious words are evidence that they did not revere God and they were against him. And it's not just their ungodly deeds. He's, he's certainly covered that in the previous verses, but it's every godless word, indeed every godless thought, will be convicted, proven, and the verdict for every ungodly sinner will be inevitably and unavoidably guilty. The, the final words of, of verse 15 in the Greek text are, are really placed last um, intentionally for their emphasis. They're sort of meant to hang in the air ominously for, for an intended effect. A, a more literal way of hearing that final phrase would be all of the harsh things spoken against him by sinners, godless persons. David Helm sums up Jude's message in verse 15. It is as if Jude is bellowing from the pulpit, enough already with this silly notion that God won't judge anyone. The ungodly who are everywhere and in every generation will be judged. Jude will leave it to no doubt that judgment is coming. It it, it is unavoidable. It is universal. It will be comprehensive and perfect and irrefutable. The ungodly will be convicted and judged. So we've seen the promise of judgment foretold and and the grounds for judgment stated. Finally, I want us to see the recipients of judgment described. Jude goes on to describe the picture of ungodliness that these false teachers have provided. And after the way verse 15 sounded and, and ended with its bombast against ungodliness, we're left to expect a stark picture. Well, what does this ungodliness look like? What are the harsh things spoken? What are the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against God? Well, the answer is perhaps a surprising description. The first part of this is the ungodliness of discontentment. Jude says these are grumblers, malcontents. These are, are two related words that are working together to sort of form a picture. The first term is a common biblical term, and the second word is unique to Jude's letter alone. A grumbler is simply someone who has a habit of complaining. What were the harsh, godless words spoken against God by these ungodly sinners grumbling and complaining? This is really another Old Testament allusion going back to the Exodus generation uh, and their wicked complaining against God uh, from God's people against God in the wilderness. At, At the first sign of hardship and everyone thereafter, the Israelites began to grumble against God. In Numbers chapter 14, we read this from the mouth of God, how long shall this wicked generation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Numbers fourteen twenty-seven. Complaining 
about our circumstances in this world is inherently a resentment toward God for our circumstances, something that can creep into the heart of any Christian. And it's something that characterizes a heart that Jude says is godless. It's a dissatisfaction, this grumbling, and a, and a discontentment with one's circumstances. Uh, and thus it is ultimately a dissatisfaction with the author of our circumstances. What, what grumbling amounts to when you boil it down to its essence is blaming God for my lot in life. And it is irreverent godlessness indeed, says Jude. The second of these terms, malcontents, is really a descriptive picture that, that comes to us from the world of ancient Greek character sketches. Uh, this ancient Greek character is the picture of the person who is able to find something to complain about in any situation. This is the opposite trait of that person who can always see the silver lining of every dark cloud. The malcontent points out the thorn on every rose, but it's worse than that. There's a godless cynicism, misery in the heart of discontentment. In the best situations, in other words, this character can find something negative to point out. The, the, the ancient Greek description of this character contains several examples. And uh, when this person, in one of these examples, when this person is presented with the joyous news of a son having been born to him, his reply, his first thought is something akin to, this is going to cost a lot. William Barclay describes the malcontent this way. He can find fault with the best of bargains, the kindest of deeds, the most complete of successes, the richest of good fortune. This is that special skill of always finding something negative, whether it's potential or real, and it is not a godly skill. It's easy, perhaps, for us to recognize the ungodliness of immoral behavior. But I wonder if we ever give enough thought to the godlessness of complaining and discontentment and cynicism at our lot in life to, to, to go about dissatisfied. And we're not talking about sadness or, or a lament in the face of hardship and dark providences, but a, but a grumbling, discontented, cynical spirit, according to the inspired pen of Jude, is to be godless. The Apostle Paul placed godliness alongside of contentment. And here Jude places their opposites in direct relation to one another. It's irreverence and an impious heart that says, even though we might not ever utter the words audibly, my circumstances should be different than they are. And God is the one at fault. How dare he? There's a high-handed godlessness at the heart of cynicism and complaining and negativity and it amounts to, to a shaking of the fist toward the heavens over our lot in life and over God's sovereign rule in our life and circumstances. The, the spirit of the, of the malcontent and the grumbler is perhaps embodied best in that infamous response of Job's wife over his tragic circumstances. Why don't you just curse God and die and get it over with? The flip side of that godlessness of discontentment is that that Holy Spirit-empowered 
godly response embodied by Job himself. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The, the, the godly approach to hard things and, and, and genuinely frustrating things in this world is, is to remember that God is still on his throne, that, that, that my father has a plan. And even though it looks like, for all I can tell, that, 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 that the puzzle of my life is either missing pieces or that they're never going to fit together in a, in a recognizable way, I know that that can't possibly be the case. Because God has promised otherwise. He's promised that it will not be that way. The, the, the godly alternative to, to a cynical, godless attitude is to stake everything I have on God's goodness and on God's promises. The godly alternative to grumbling and discontentment is to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Do our neighbors or our children see us living in in an essentially godless manner as we fret our current circumstances or or our future or or the decisions of our government or or whatever the case may be? Or, Or do they see us with that defiant, faith in the God who does all things well and in the God whose kingdom shall have no end and who has promised to never leave me or to leave me alone. They need to see that in us. Perhaps this grumbling and discontentment is something that we've struggled with maybe more of late. Perhaps the Lord is showing us through frustrating times the proneness of our heart that we are often too guilty of, of a godless and malcontented spirit. And it was a godless outlook indeed that was underneath the sins and the words of Jude's opponents. The other side of this is the ungodliness of selfish pride. Jude goes on to add, uh, following their own sinful desires. What is the godless heart of discontentment really but uh, the, the slave to sinful, selfish desires. It's the ungodly and therefore selfish nature of that, that Jude is highlighting with this word. That, that, that's the heart that not only fuels grumbling and discontentment, but that's the heart that fuels any sin, uh, any immorality. It, it's, a, it's a godlessness in the face of, of the temptation of the moment. I don't care about anything else in this moment except pleasing myself. It's the godlessness of immoral thought and behavior as if there were no God and as if he would not judge. Whereas Revelation chapter 14, 4 describes beautifully true believers as as those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. The godless one follows their own selfish desire wherever they may lead. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage here the idea there of of loud or more literally huge words uh, is is kind of an idiom that's a picture of of selfish arrogance but there's really behind that selfish arrogance on the surface a, a, a sycophantic weakness in their pride and it reveals itself on the other side of the same coin uh, showing favoritism to gain advantage. They might be big talkers, but really underneath, they're all about self-preservation. Or as Michael Green describes, we find them at the mercy of their own fears of what men will do to them. This is a godlessness in that that it puts man in the place of God 
And it's ultimately another form of godless pride. Cowardice and man-pleasing are just as godless as a bombastic arrogance. Well, thus Jude concludes his description from verses 5 all the way through verse 16 of of the ungodly false teachers that presented such a danger and and necessitated this very letter to his beloved readers. And and, in these verses, these final verses of that portrayal, it's undeniably true that Jude has not left any room for the ungodly to escape judgment. Ungodly sinners will be judged. It is unmistakably clear from his language. But as the description of ungodliness unfolds, of what ungodliness looks like and what it is in its essence, how it manifests itself in our, in our pride or our fear of man or our grumbling and cynicism, that dethroning of God in how many different ways. How amazing it is then to think of the words of the Lord Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, John five twenty four. The entire record of all of my ungodly sins committed in an ungodly manner by an ungodly sinner has been wiped clean. How can it be that an ungodly sinner can escape the just verdict of perfect judgment for all their ungodliness? It is because the perfect judgment, the justice of perfect judgment has been meted out on another. All of the justice due for my grumbling, godless cynicism, pride, everything else, the, the irrefutable verdict of guilt that was rightly mine was pronounced on the one who would bear my sins on his body on the tree. We go back to the call to worship from earlier this evening. Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You consider how Jude has described such a thing that, that, that statement should melt us. Paul goes on, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Romans 5, 6-9. As you begin to see more and more, as you grow the sinfulness of sin, it it ought to cause us to marvel that this is true. The true realization, every fresh realization by the Christian, only given by the Spirit, as as a person who's awakened to the state of their own sin and and the just claims of the justice of God against them, uh, the realization that that justice has been dealt to the undeserving one for everyone who comes to him. This is a cause for and a fuel for love and obedience and godliness like no other. I know how much godlessness still remains. 
praise God for his mercy and his patience toward us. I'm, I'm going to keep working on trusting him and pursuing obedience and godliness and my attitudes and my speech and my behavior. If you're an unbeliever hearing these words, there, there is no escape from the judgment that is coming outside of the refuge of the Lord Jesus. Believe in him who justifies the ungodly. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the simplest children's truth, but it is the most profound and the most moving reality. William Cooper, in a similar sentiment, put it like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. May this be true of all who hear my voice. Amen. O Lord our God, we thank you for the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we believe this and live godly lives as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.